Your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are looking at a section of scripture on relationships. Remember, we have transitioned from uh, looking at the theology into the relationships. We have looked in the broader relationships of the world, of authorities, of those that oppose us, that, that resist us. We're now going into the intimate relationships within the home, the most intimate relationship within the home, and that is between uh, a wife and her husband, husband and his wife. And we're going to be taking uh, several weeks to do this. Uh, we started last week, and we're going to have to review a little bit of that for you. But let's go ahead and read the scripture before us right now. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We're going to be looking at a number of other passages this morning, as I said last week. But let's read this as our context. It says, Wives likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may even be won by the conduct of their lives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, the, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do, not, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. So we looked last week at the concept of what it means to be a, a submissive to one's own husband. Remember we talked about that as certainly a concept that of owning, taking ownership of your marriage, that that is your commitment to, that's your husband. You, you said yes, you, you married him, and so that, take ownership of that. Uh, and if it was a mistake back then, and you think it was, uh, own that as well, and just accept that. That's a lot that you have put into your life, and that would go a long ways just to build that kind of relational contentment in your life. But we looked at the word likewise as one of the key words understanding what submission is about. Uh, we can look at the context and say, well, if we go back in the previous chapter, we have the word submissive, and we have it in context of what? Slaves, be submissive to your masters. So is that the likewise? Like slaves are submissive to their masters, am I supposed to be submissive to my husband? And that's not really the context at all, because as we saw last week, we go down to the word husbands, and it says also husbands likewise. So it's not that, because then it would be, well, how do I relate to slaves? Does your husband treat you as a... No. The likewise there is going back to Jesus Christ. That is what it's referencing. As Christ was submissive, likewise wives would be submitting. So what did Christ submit to? Well, he submitted to the humiliation of leaving the heaven's glory, of coming into the presence of man as a man, with all the limitations of man. And yes, we're going to talk a lot about limitations. Uh, because as we talked about humility last week, we're going to talk about self-control this week. I shouldn't have said that ahead of time, because they would have... I would have been marked off in my homiletics class at seminary for that. So we're going to look at what this means to go from princess in your dad's home to being the wife. And you might say, well, that's a queen. Well, not necessarily. You're still being submissive to another authority. And so when we look at the necessity for humility for submission, like Christ humbled himself, we're also going to look and develop that further. But Christ is the example. 
Christ not only humbled himself in coming and being among men and having the limitations on him that he did not experience prior to that relationship, prior to that coming, to that humiliation, we also find him even being willing to suffer. And remember, that is the context of Peter. That's one of the secondary, it's one of the three major themes is how do we deal with suffering? And sometimes that is in the context of a relationship, even the intimate one of marriage. That I'm going to accept even from a husband that does not obey God's word. That I'm going to accept that and be submissive to that authority as Christ was submissive even to the authorities that demanded his beating, that demanded him being stripped and, and the crown of thorns, that demanded him to be, to be crucified. All of that that Jesus Christ submitted himself to because he saw a prize beyond it. And that prize beyond that suffering is your salvation. And the prize beyond the, the condition of being a humble servant, willing to receive even suffering in the name of that co of commitment to that relationship, that humility, is the heart and soul of that one that you're submitting to. We're not calling on this without understanding that there is pain involved, and we talked about that. But we are seeking to win husbands to Christ. You are being little messiahs to your own husbands. And thus, by the conduct of their wives, some may be won, not to their wives' will, but to Christ. Therefore, that is really your willingness that we extend ourselves to that point. We just sang a song. We began a song about, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. Do what you want me to do. Say what you want me to say. We often sing that in missions conferences and as though, well, we can, it's, it's, it's admirable. We look up to it. If we go out to the mission field and we get beat up for Jesus Christ or we get, we get martyred for Jesus Christ and we say, well, those are our heroes and we can hopefully name some of them. We have an entire chapter of the Bible talking about by faith. They did these things and some of those things they did cost them their lives. That I, by faith, I'm going to serve God wherever he sends me, no matter what it costs me. And we have martyrs from the mission field that, that we know. We have, we have a contact with the Burnhams and with, with uh, uh, Martin Burnham, who died in the Philippines uh, at the hands of, of Muslim terrorists. And we... And we Having his widow has an entire foundation built upon that sacrifice that we recognize. But what if the mission field is a lot closer to home? What if the mission field is the other side of the bed? Do we honor that one that says, I will suffer to reach this one for Christ? And that's the force of 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. That somehow we can romanticize the idea that we can go out and suffer for the world, but I can't suffer for my spouse, to bring my husband to Christ. When this is our first mission field, is our very family, and we can get into the children and our responsibilities there, but our but when we look at this and we want to live our lives in such a way 
that it's going to win our spouse, our husband to Christ, and we're going to look at the opposite, how a husband's going to win their wives to Christ as well, um, but that we're going to subject ourselves to those kinds of harshness to do so. Just as he told the slaves to be willing to be subjected to harsh masters, just as Christ submitted himself to the harsh treatment he received, though he was innocent, why? Well, we are told that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, suffered his shame, despised it, cared nothing about it. Doesn't matter how much I, it costs me as long as it means salvation for others. And that kind of courage is what God calls you to and requires great humility. And so we looked at that last week, and I had one person ask, well, you skipped a word. I did skip a word. I was going to come back next week. We're going to get to it when we get to the end of this passage. But now we want to jump into verse 3. We have looked at humility as a necessity of this kind of Christ-like submission to authority within the home. Now we're going to take a little different perspective on the same theme. That we aren't leaving the idea of being submissive to your husbands. That is the key and that is the, the focus here for sure. We're going to now look at it from a different direction. We've looked at it from the direction of can you win your husband to Christ? And for those of you who are blessed to be married to a believer, can you win him to a deeper relationship with Christ? Can you encourage him in his walk with Christ to make his spiritual life the priority of his life? Not you, the priority of life. His spiritual walk. That his relationship with God is tuned and tuned and tuned. Not by you preaching to him, but by you living before him. We made that application last week. And so now we move forward. Different perspective, same theme. Submission to your own husband's. It says, do not let your adornment be merely outward. In verse 3, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And then they give Sarah as the example. We find here, from a different perspective, the concept of wearing our submissiveness as an adornment in our life. And the, the word beauty has been inserted there. It's not in the Greek. The whole idea of adorning is to take what is there and to, pre, and to make it even more presentable, to, to uh, enhance it. And the concept of it is beauty. Since they added that word, it's italicized there because it's not in the original Greek. But it's the concept that is there. That we're going to adorn beauty. And so when we talk about ourselves, well, how am I going to make myself attractive? When we look at the, uh, the relationship between a husband and wife, and in the, in the, if we go back into the time when we are courting, what is the concern? Is focus on outward beauty. And I've seen wives trying to win their husbands by going back to that thing when they, when they have seen their marital relationship strain. Well, I will, I will take better care of myself and I'll, I'll dress nicer. I'll put on the makeup. I'll do, the per I'll do all the things I did when we were courting to get his attention. 
And, and, and that's okay, but realize that that's temporal. And it's going to get harder and harder as you get older. <laughs> I'm sorry, just the realities of life. Say, well, I, I'm going to do all of this to try to make myself attractive to my husband. Just as I did all this to make myself attractive to this who is courting me. And we can see that focus, even if we go to the Song of Songs, and we see her talking about, well, she was kind of ashamed of her skin because it was burnt, sunburnt, kind of like me today, a little bit. And, uh, and, and, and she says, you know, I want to adorn myself for my beloved. And so Peter is not here saying, don't do that thing. It says, don't let your adornment be outward, just this. Don't let it just be that. We're arranging hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. You've done all this, uh, and you make that the focus. But this is temporal, and any man should be... <laughs> no, no. It, it will persuade men. It will. Okay? Just like men quoting poetry persuades women, even though they might be cads underneath all of that. And, and uh, so it can persuade some men. You can put on all the makeup and... and paint the barn, and, and I've watched a few of those videos they are very disturbing, where he says, here's the before and here's the after and how I got from here to here, and I don't know why it came up on my Facebook page, but maybe it was someone I knew sent to me on Facebook, and I'm like, oh, man, that's, that's what you look like in the morning. This is what you look like when you show up here. Um, boy, that's deception if I've ever seen it. And, of course, the old adage that I grew up with was, the barn needs painting, paint it. Uh, but I would never refer to my wife's face as that. But there's a beauty that is much deeper and much more resilient. And it's this that he wants to point to, and it's hidden, it says in verse 4, the hidden person of the heart. And I want to just share with you, the hidden person of the heart radiates out your face. And it's called the countenance. When you see it, about your countenance. What is your countenance? Now, I have seen uh, gals all dolled up and be ugly because they have no countenance. They can't smile. They, are, they scowl. They are nasty looking. Uh, no matter whether they have no blemishes that are visible to the naked eye anymore, um, you can still look at them and say, well, I don't want to be stuck with that uh, because they they're look like they've been sucking lemons their whole life. And so we talk about their countenance. Countenance reveals what is in the hidden parts of your heart. And this is not whether you have blemishes and what color, whether you have, you know, thick and eye eyebrows, um, eyelashes, sorry. Uh, but rather, um, it is evident in your face, in how you look in terms of these things whether you're smiling, whether your eyes are bright and open, whether they are lifted up or cast down, and, and whether the brow is furrowed or not furrowed. Um, all of those things are countenance, and it shows what's going on in the heart. And we all know about the look, don't we, men? And all of us, really, because mom had the look, too, right? And, and I do that really dramatically with, with my grandkids. I, they know I'm I give them that look and they know they're in trouble. Um, well, if a man's going around his house and that's all he sees is that look, 
He's not going to be a happy man. Because that's not what he wants to see when he comes home. It's not what he wants to see at any time in his home. It's revealing something of the heart. And so while the hidden matters of the heart we're going to be addressing, I want you to know that they are evident in your life. They're evident in the tone of speech. It's evident in the countenance that you project um, and, and show. It's, it's evident in your carriage. It's evident in all of that. And so we want to project that which is true. I don't want you to work on your countenance and not work on the hidden parts because that's just being an actress. God doesn't want you to be an actress. And that's why he doesn't say work on your countenance, not just your, your skin tone and, and your uh, colorations. But rather, work, he doesn't say work on your countenance. You don't have to if you work on the hidden parts of the heart. And this is what he wants to address. The hidden person of the heart, which is an incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. These are the hidden qualities we're looking for. We already talked about the necessity of humility. That is a, a, a quality that is necessary to be submissive. And we're going to see that in the idea of uh, a gentle and quiet spirit. Then we talk about gentleness and being quiet. We often think, well, that means you're in a position of weakness, that you're in a position of, 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 of cowering to authority. But that's really not entailed in either one of these terms. Then we look at the concept of Christ being gentle, that he is the good shepherd, that he calls his sheep, that he cares for them, that he leads them to green pastures, and we have all the pastoral scenery of the Psalms brought into that concept of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. He says, my burden is light. Um, I have a burden for you to bury, but, it, but it's a light one. Um, but he talks about himself in those terms. We think of those terms that of gentleness, that Christ does not come up to you and, and force you into salvation, nor does he force you into an obedient walk, nor does he force you. He is gentle. And while he has the power to do these things, he is not disposed to use those powers in a violent manner. Could he? Did he on occasions? Yes. We see him in the cleansing of the temple, in a few other instances, we see this um, in, in his impatience with, with demonic activity and things like that. We know he has the power to do this, but he presents himself as gentle. And gentleness, of course, is one of the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians 5. And so we are call, all called to gentleness, but when, in the relationship between you and your husband, that you are coming in with a gentleness. And gentleness requires an underlying patience. It is not self-interested, as 1 Corinthians 13 describes what love is all about. It is not self-pursuant. Gentleness is recognizing that the individual that you are gentle towards, that while you could exert all your influence and power there, that it would only be detrimental to them and not beneficial to them. And what you are seeking in your relationship with your husband is to be a benefit to him. That's what it means to be a help meet, 
a, helps, a helper suitable. It is of no value for me to hire someone to come help me when they're constantly making my life hard. You know, I'm going to fire you. If I hired you to be my helper and, and you make it worse, I'm not going to keep you on the job. Similarly, in this relationship, you are called upon to be a helper. Your job is to make his job easier. And when a husband is frustrated because a wife is making his job harder, it's not his fault, it is yours, gals. And gentleness says, I want to see the needs there, and I'm going to address those needs, not with the force that I could take, but with a Christ-like influence, with gentleness. And that's what the whole theme in the first verse was about. You don't have to sit there and preach at him. You don't have to uh, uh, use that kind, any language at all, but you're going to have a chase that is a pure conduct, and you're going to try to win him gently. Gentleness takes time, requires patience, it requires compassion. And again, you can't, have, not self-interested here. We're interested for their benefit. And so he calls us, this is the hidden quality of gentleness. Let me just share with you that as a wife and as a woman, you have extraordinary power in your husband's life. The world doesn't always recognize it, but it is there. It is evident from the scriptures. It is evident further from just experience. And you've heard me speak before of all the things that men have done because of their wives that they would never have done if it hadn't been for their wives. Let's start with Genesis. Why did Adam eat a piece of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He did it because his wife gave it to him. She took and ate. He was there. And now you've got a problem. She ate of it. Do I have my relation with God or my relation with my wife? That's in the balance there. And we can go right through the scriptures and see time and again where the wife exerted her influence and it was a disaster when Sarah didn't believe God, says, um, take, take my Hagar, my handmaiden, and, and have a son with her. That didn't work out so well. Here comes Ishmael. Now we've got a problem. Same thing with Jacob and his two wives, sisters, fighting each other, giving their handmaidens and all the Issues going on. We can go through scripture again and again. We can look at Samson and, and his, what he is willing to sacrifice to make this woman happy. Over and over again, we see the power of the influence of women. Look at what it did to Solomon, the wisest man on earth. What did the women do? They turned his heart away from God. That's the kind of power you have in your husband's lives. You can make their life so miserable they'll do exactly what you want them to do and not what God wants them to do. You have that kind of power. And so when the Bible says that you are gentle, it is the surrender of that kind of power and influence that I'm going to rather come into this and allow God to have more influence over my husband than I have influence over him. That's what we're talking about.
This is the concept of gentleness. That I'm not going to force what I want on him because that's going to end up being a disaster. I'll get my way, but will God get his in that man's life? Yes, you can nag and make your husband miserable till he does what you want him to do. And I'm pretty sure in the experience of every mature couple and even the ones more newly married, you can give examples of that yourselves. I can. As wonderful as my wife is, she's done that in the past. She's regretted, I've regretted it. But that was where we were at, at the time. And so we go through the scripture and say, well, no, if I am gentle and submissive, that I'm not going to take this position of making my husband's life miserable until he does what I want him to do. Because that almost always in what I can find in Scripture is tragic. Let's turn, if you will, to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. I want, I'm going to give you some examples of women. The Bible's going to give you the example of Sarah and her beauty. But we're going to look at, let me look at some other examples. This is the account where David meets a gal that he is eventually going to marry. But she's somebody else's wife. In 1 Samuel 25, David is coming on with his servants. He's approached a very wealthy man who he has protected his assets for some time. His name is Nabal. And Nabal doesn't honor and respect David. And so in verse 13, David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man gird on his sword. David also gird on his sword. About 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything, as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, and all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master, against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what 1 Peter 3 is addressing. You're married to a scoundrel. And notice what the, what the servant said. No one can convince him otherwise with speech. They said it right there. One cannot speak to him. He's stubborn in his scoundrelness. That's who he is. And Abigail's married to him. And you go, how did that happen? It happens. It happened back then like it happens today. Wise, godly women get hooked up with scoundrels. And if it happens, I'm sorry. But I want you to see what Abigail does. She doesn't go slap him. She doesn't do anything. She takes... She, verse 18, she made haste, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five. She goes through and lists all these things. She, verse 19, says to her servants, okay, he's a very wealthy man. She has her own resources and her own servants, her maid servants. Go on before me, see I'm coming after you, but she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, she rode on the donkey, she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down to her, and she met them, and, uh, and David says, I'm going to destroy everything. Uh, and verse 23, Abigail said to David, 
Uh, when she, Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, bowed down to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel. Well, for his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord who sent you. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from committing bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. Now, this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. And we can go on and talk about the relationship between uh, him and Saul that she talks about. So look at her actions. This is, she is going to recover from her, deliver, she's essentially going to become a little Messiah for her husband. She goes to the David who has every right to destroy Nabal's household. He has the authority as king. He has the further issue of the disrespect that has been shown to him uh, out there by Nabal. And here she comes, and notice her first words, let his sin be on me. I'm going to carry his sin. And then please forgive me. And here's the presence. Here's what should have been owed to you by all the good things you've done for me. Let my husband's sin be on me. I come to you asking you to look on me because I wasn't aware that you guys came. And so I'm going to take some responsibility and I want you to place my husband's sin on me. And I'm going to give you these gifts. And I'm going to ask you to forgive me now that you've transferred his sin onto me. Wow. This is a concept of gentleness that most women don't understand. Because you've not been taught it. Rather, we want to complain to other people about it, complain to the kids about it, gripe to God about it. We want to look, how did I ever get hooked up with this guy? Why is he still alive? Now, yes, by the end of the story, Nabal is going to have a heart at seizure, essentially. And uh, in response to this, it says in verse 36, Now Abigail went to Nabal. There he was holding a feast in his house like it was feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry. He was very drunk. She told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. She didn't run in there and say, I had to bail you out, buster. No, he's having a feast. He's having a great time. And then in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, his wife told him these things, she did communicate what she's done. This is what I did. There's no accusativeness here. She's simply telling him what she has done. It says his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Then it took ten days and he died. Oh, that he would have been responsive and thanked her and blessed her and gone to David himself and sought to make it right. But he was a scoundrel. We hope to win him, but... The alternative is God judges him. Let God judge him. 
but we want to see Abigail as an example of what it means to be a gentle-spirited woman. Just as Christ is our gentle shepherd, that he bears our burdens for us, and he leads us, that that is that concept of gentleness, that when necessary, he'll pick us up and carry us. He could kick us and push us and whip us, but no, he picks us up and carries us. Oh, that we understand that in that role as a wife, you have an incredible amount of influence and power. You can use it to try to get your way, but that would be a disaster. Oh, that you would use it to make a way for your husband's relationship with God. And here she goes behind the scenes. She uses her own resources. She puts herself in complete jeopardy. She says, put his sin on me and then please forgive me. She bows herself down to the one her husband should have bowed down to. But she bowed to David. This is the concept of gentleness that is going to strengthen your marriage, that God calls you to. We have other examples. I have lots of them. We could talk about Esther we, and, and uh, many others. But the biblical example, of course, is, is Sarah. We're going to be looking at her shortly. The other description is a quiet spirit. A quiet spirit. And the concept here isn't just quiet with your mouth. We talked about that last week then without a word, but a quiet spirit. And a quiet spirit is a settledness, a peacefulness. And one of the things we want in relationships is peace. And hence, Jesus Christ is blessed are the peacemakers. They were making peace. When we have a quiet spirit, it is that settledness. It is uh, pointing you to contentment that you have a contented spirit, and it is evident whether you're to a husband, whether his wife is contented or not, whether she has a quiet spirit, not whether she doesn't ever say a word, but is she at peace in her home? Is she at peace in the role that God has placed her there? And we see plenty of examples of, of where that was absent, and, and we see the the friction and the frustration there. And perhaps one of the clearest places to me is with Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and she was without child, and the other wife had a child, and, and, and as much as the husband wanted to fix it, he couldn't fix it. He says, I don't know what to do, and she pours herself out to God, and then God hears her prayer and gives her Samuel and other, other sons as well. Uh, but that frustration of a husband saying, what can I do? Because there was not a quietness in her heart until Eli came and says, God heard your prayers, get out of here. I'm convinced a quiet spirit came upon her then. Because she says, God, I will trust. Oh, that we would have a quiet spirit, a contentedness, a settledness, a, 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 a trust in God in our circumstances that says, I'm in this relationship and I will not be discontent here. I will be fully satisfied with the extent that it is and if God should bless it to increase that, then so be it. But I will be, I will be quiet here. I'll be at peace. That's what's involved here. And that shows in your countenance that this is a place that you are happy to be at. I'm just content. 
to be in this relationship and to have you as my husband and to, and to serve you every way I can to make your life better, easier, and more successful to be what you need me to be. <laughs> what are you just saying? Oh, that we would have that concept of a quiet spirit. Not a cowering spirit, a quiet spirit. And that it is a settledness in our heart. That everything's okay. As long as I do my biblical uh, responsibilities here of submitting to my husband, even though he's a scoundrel uh, and foolish and, and violent even, that I have a settledness. And, and all that we could understand the spirit of Christ behind his, during his trial, behind his settledness. He could endure all of that because it was settled, it was settled at Gethsemane. Then his spirit was troubled. Remember it says that. His spirit was troubled within him. And he prayed out to God. Not my will, but yours be done. And then there was a settledness. And he could face his Judases. He could face his accusers. He could face the beatings. He could face the cross itself because it was settled at Gethsemane. His spirit wasn't troubled anymore. Oh, that you would pour it out. A gentle, quiet spirit. A quiet spirit is one that has all settled between you and God. Oh, give that relationship to God. And let it be settled in your life. This is the key to that precious role of being a wife, even to a scoundrel. And you have examples in Scripture both to the negative and the positive. We have them there. And this is a beauty that the Bible says God himself recognizes. It is precious in God's sight. This kind of adornment, let these be the things that you put on your person to be appealing to your husband and to God himself. And this is repeated for us in other scriptures. I invite you to turn over to Timothy. Uh, I'm sorry, not Timothy, to Ephesians. Sorry, wrong one. To Ephesians chapter 5. And again, we're going to be talking about the husband's role here in a few weeks. If you'll uh, just bear with me. He has a responsible, responsibility here as well. Uh, again, verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Can't emphasize that enough. In everything, he's the head. Then we have some instructions for the husbands, but look at the goal of, of all of this. That he might present her to himself, in verse 27, that he might present him, her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The goal of all of this is that you have a beauty that endures that will never be blemished, will never have spot or wrinkle on it. And isn't that what the goal is, right? We have all these hydrating creams and everything. We want to get rid of those age spots, those blemishes, those wrinkles. Those marks of age that, that all of us gather over time that affect women more than men. Somehow when men get them, they make them... Something other than, what do they call it? Um, anyway, I'll think of the word here later. But if women have them, oh boy, she's lost her beauty. 
Oh no. We want to have an inner quality that never wrinkles, that is never blemished, that has no spots. And it is from this gentle, quiet spirit that that kind of beauty exudes no matter the age. Now, Sarah is our example. What do we know about Sarah? Well, we know that she had incredible physical beauty. She had outward beauty to spare, didn't she? At 90 years old, Abram was afraid that if he took her out in public in another land, people would kill him for her. When she was 90, she was that beautiful. And in fact, it happened. That because they went around and said, she's my sister instead of she's my wife, that she was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now he only goes after the best of the land. He's the king. And she's the prettiest one of the land, of the realm. There you go. Right into the fairy book. She's 90. She had incredible physical appearance. But before God, what was precious was that she called her husband Lord. Even when her husband told her to do a crazy thing, like don't tell anybody you're my wife. Even to the point of coming to Pharaoh's household, she still didn't tell Pharaoh that she was somebody else's wife. Abram really isn't my brother, he's my wife. He's my, <laughs> he's my husband. She obeyed her husband. It was to the point of ridiculousness. It was God that had to intervene and, gave, and said, don't you touch that woman. I'm going to curse your whole family. You touch that. That's another man's wife. And Pharaoh, what? Wakes up. Ah! Goes, what have you done to us? What are you trying to do to us? And then his son does the same thing with Rebecca. These women had incredible beauty. But what is noteworthy in Scripture is that she called Abram Lord, Abraham, later on. And she submitted herself to her husband even when her husband's decisions were driven by fear and faithlessness. This is the guy that's later on going to be sacrificing his own son. So Abram's going to learn faith, but back then he didn't have it. He had fear instead of faith. Do you listen to your husband when he has fear instead of faith? Sarah did. And that was precious in the sight of God, and God protected her. Can you submit to your husband when he's driven by fear instead of faith? That's the meek, that's the gentle and quiet spirit. That's why Sarah's given the example here. She has all the physical appearance to die for. I mean, she's got it all. But it was what is inside of her that was the enduring beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit that says, this is my Lord. And if he wants me to say I'm his sister, I'll keep doing that until he tells me otherwise or God intervenes. 
Now, did she always do that? No, of course, we already gave the example that she failed that in handing Hagar over to her husband to, make a, to, to have an heir with, with her. But that was a disaster. When she submitted to her husband as God demands, it was precious in God's sight, he protected her, and it was a powerful beauty that doesn't go away. It is indestructible. And so we are called to this kind of development that as much as I worry about my hair color, as much as I worry about my jewelry, as much as I worry about my clothing, as much as I work on adorning my physical self, oh, that I would spend much more time making sure that the hidden person of my heart is is attractive. Am I attractive to my husband in my heart and it's going to come out in my countenance? That kind of attraction will never end. Your husband will always respond to a gentle and quiet spirit. He will always go there. He will respond to that. That honoring of him. You do not find even Nabal the scoundrel understood that his wife did what was right and did not dishonor her at all but unfortunately he wouldn't submit and repent. God will honor it, but so will your husband. And I want to share with you something about husbands. They won't fight for your respect. If you refuse to give it to them, they will not fight to receive it. They won't. They'll simply withhold their love. That's all they do. They simply become apathetic. If you don't want to honor your husband, you don't want to uh, be a helper to him, he'll simply, you're not relevant. I say, isn't he just trying to guard his ego? Maybe, if he's a scoundrel. If he's not hearing the word, but even for a Christian husband. If I am honored in my home, then I become apathetic, not just towards my wife and family, but even towards life itself. In the requirements for a pastor given in Timothy, now we can go to Timothy. We have a description of a requirements of a bishop that in verse chapter three, verse two, a bishop must be blameless, a husband of one wife, temperate, sober minded, a good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to much wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle. There's the same word gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well. Having his children in submission with all reverence. If you think that that is just his job and not your job, you are mistaken. I will contend with you that that verse has as much to do with the bishop as it does with the bishop's wife. Is he ruling his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence? For if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? 
This is a reflection on him that goes beyond the relation between a husband and wife. That if my wife won't honor and respect me, if my wife won't submit to me, if my wife won't revere me, in that sense, if I have not exercised that uh, enough honorable life that she should do that, then I have no business being in the ministry. It impacts not only my relationship with my wife, it impacts the relationship with my children, it impacts the relationship with my church, it impacts the relationship with the world. So it's critical, women, in your relationship, the strength of your husband's leadership is in your heart. That you cherish it there. It will show in your countenance. It will be granted in in wise actions, in chaste conduct, Peter says, to carry maybe some of his sin even, as Abigail did. To strengthen his place in the home and not undermine it. And sometimes that might feel like you're shoring it up, like Abigail did. (laughs) We're dead if I don't do this because my foolish husband. But she did it. She took that responsibility upon herself with her own resources, and God blessed her for that. Oh, that we would see that role of making sure that our husband of necessity must be built up at home in authority, that it might be beyond our personal relationship between husband and wife, and extend to our children, to our church, to our world. Now do you see the necessity and the power of your submission and your relationship in his life? I couldn't be a pastor today if my wife wasn't submissive to me. Because she would lead our children not to, re- to have respect and honor for their dad. And I would not be in charge of our home. And therefore I couldn't be a pastor. Oh, that we would, that you would lay hold of what Christ lay hold of. A gentle spirit. A settledness. A quiet spirit. Just like Christ had from Gethsemane on. I'll take it. I'll endure it. I have a goal that's greater than my own comforts. To make sure I have a gentle and quiet spirit and I know that God will take care of me. And this is really what it's about. It's about trusting God. Now, having said all that, I want to just close with a little sidelight. You might say, well, that's not my personality. (laughs) This has nothing to do with personality. You say, well, I'm just not a quiet person, or I'm not, that's not who I am. Um, hopefully the definition of those terms recognize that this is about self-control. As humility is necessary, as we talked about last week, self-control is necessary. And all of you must do that. Under the curse, it says that one of the, thing, one of the things that's brought upon women is that they'll have a desire after the man. Not for the man in sense of, of attraction to him, but rather a desire for his position of authority. That is the sin curse that you carry upon you as well as pain and childbearing. Is that you're going to have in this innate desire to take over your husband's role. 
And what we are calling you to is to bring that under control. It has nothing to do with whether you have a, I don't have a quiet, meek, gentle personality. Nonsense. We're all called to gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit. It transcends personality. Are some persons more able to, to project that in their life? Yes, certainly. And are other personalities needing more self-control, more of the of humility in that area? Yes, certainly. But these principles are there for all wives in every relationship, regardless of who the husband is. Therefore, it falls upon you. Do you trust the Lord enough, the Lord God, to consider your husband Lord on earth? Even to the point of him telling you to lie about your relationship with him. That's what Sarah did. Oh, that we would see that, the benefit, ultimately, that God will, is trustworthy if I will take him up at his word and be the wife he wants me to be. Humble, under control, wise, gentle, quieted. Are you content with your own husband? We're going to be looking one more week to finish out this passage I just want to challenge you. Take ownership of that relationship, of your part in that. Don't say, well, if he would, if he would. There's no if he's here anywhere. It's even if he's a scoundrel. Even if he won't obey God's word. Even if he lives by fear instead of faith. Even if you do and be what God would have you be in that relationship. Let him take care of the rest. Pour it out to God. As so many women in Scripture have done. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for this clear instruction in your word. And for what it entails in us. And we know that what it requires of our wives is to have a better relationship with you. To be able to model these qualities of Christ in their life toward their husbands. And Lord, even as the example, Sarah, that you've given failed on occasions in this respect, our wives will fail. They're not perfect. And Lord, we pray that you might um, give them wisdom to see that, to bring that under control, to repent of that and confess that even to their own husbands as they do to you, that they might strive each day to be that godly helper to their husband. To be gentle in the power they have in his life. And to be settled and content, quieted. And the knowledge that you are blessing that relationship in a in degree to which we obey your word in those relationships. Lord, help our wives trust you. That our marriages might be strengthened as each does their part. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.